Hello, I'm Catherine Haddon, a Senior Fellow at the Institute for Government. Thanks for joining this special IFG festive gathering for what we are hoping will be a little escape. We thought, given lockdown and the horrible year it's been, it's time for us to cover something a little bit lighter. Now, as I'm sure you're aware, in the IFG we obsess about government, but like many of you, we've also had our year dominated by watching lots of stuff. TV, box sets, screenplays, you name it. So... Like the best IFG trips to the pub, also not been possible this year, why not combine the two? So for this week only, we're going to talk government and TV and possibly a few films. What shows cover government and politics the best? What do they get right? What do they get wrong? What hills are our resident experts prepared to die on when it comes to egregious mistakes? And what shows and films are really about government, but you just don't know it? We are going to reveal a few of our favourites and explore the hidden effective government angles in various drama, comedy, sci-fi and fantasy. So we could have had the whole IFG on this uh, particular podcast, but we had to limit the guests. I'm very pleased to be joined by some true fictional government experts. First up is Alice Lilly. As well as being a parliamentary expert, Alice also likes all the same stuff as me. So total groupthink will follow. Alice, thank you for being here. Thanks, Kath. And I'm also very pleased to have back the recently departed from IFG, but never truly gone, Gavin Freeguard. Gavin loves data and digital and films about data and digital. <laughs> Gavin, welcome back. Thank you very much, Kath. That's a very, very niche film category. Uh, well, you can show that off later. And also joining us is our Director of Research, Emma Norris. Emma and I both agree on our assessment of the undoing. Sorry, we're not that bothered about the green coat, everyone. Uh, Hi, Emma. Hi, Kath. Actually, um, I hated the green coat. Yeah. I was trying to be nice <laughs> about it because I don't want to have a massive Twitter war. But yeah, finally, a huge welcome to our special guest. He's written some of the greatest political and media dramas of our time from this house in 2012 through quiz about who wants to be a millionaire scandal. Gavin knows that topic very well to Channel 4's Brexit, The Uncivil War. And he's just created a short lockdown musical, We Begin Again, with the National Theatre and The Guardian. We have playwright and TV writing legend, James Graham. James, so lovely to have you with us here today. Thank you, Kat. Hi, everyone. Right, let's get going. Let's start with shows about government. And first, I just want to try and diagnose the problem a little bit. That's what we always do in our reports. What is it that people are looking for in this? Then we'll get into talking about some of the best and perhaps the worst shows that we think of. Alice, I'm going to pick on you first. We cover this stuff all day long for work. Why on earth would you watch stuff about government during your time off? So I think personally, I'm just a bit of a glutton for punishment. So there's that. And, yeah. you know, ultimately it does prevent kind of doom scrolling on Twitter. Uh, frankly, this year, it's just been nice to try and escape into some other kind of dystopian world rather than the reality of 2020. But I think part of it as well is that it's always quite interesting when you have shows and films that sort of humanise a bit of what happens in government and that actually show people in government having to make difficult choices or decisions and you see how those things affect their kind of day-to-day -day lives and relationships. And I, I think that just helps bring it home a little bit how difficult actually it is to be in government. I think that's very true. Um, I uh, One of the shows I've been watching a lot lately, just because as ever with box sets, you have to finish them, uh, is Veep. So I finally made it to the end of that. And I have to say, my God, none of them are at all humanised or sympathetic <laughs> or whatever. 
Um, you know, it just gets worse and worse and worse. And I don't know with everything that's been going on in the US at the moment, whether that makes it better or worse when you're watching a show that isn't a sort of a fantasy alternate uh, version of it. Um, James, a question I've always wanted to ask you. I mean, what brought you to this topic? I mean, we're huge fans because obviously you get a lot of the detail right. This House was one of my favourite plays. But what is it about government and politics that appeals both to you and that you think appeals more widely to people? And I actually came to it through story. So it was actually um, history and my love of, you know, turning up to history classes every single week. I wanted, it was like, it was like a next Netflix box set. I wanted to find out what happened next. Did the king live or die? Did the empire rise or fall? There is, we, I was constantly told when I started writing that there actually wasn't any appetite at all in a mainstream audience for finishing your day of work and going to the theatre or turning on a TV drama and watching uh, plays about politics. That's anathema to what, what we want to help yeah. want to relax. And it's just proved entirely the opposite. And um, for me, I've just found, and you know, your organisation has helped me massively in this. I've actually found the best way to access some of these worlds isn't through big operatic thriller storylines where politicians are murdering each other. It's actually the more mundane um, processes and systems, um, which is why I completely loved geeking out in the play you mentioned, This House, which was actually all about politicians in the 1970s struggling to not pass legislation, uh, mm. just because it's how, it's how um, if, you, if you can understand how the machine works, how the cogs turn, and you get into the minutiae of these, these processes and these rituals and these day-to-day um, functions of government, I think they start to reveal naturally something bigger, uh, both about the country in which we live and about who we are as human beings. Uh, I can imagine, obviously, when you've got people like the IFG watching you, you feel under huge pressure to get all of the details <laughs> right. Um, I, I know, Alice, I, I think you and I, we've both had problems in recent time. Uh, just make sure that you don't have ministers turning up to um Sorry, being on select committees, interviewing people. That is something that Alice nearly walked out uh, from uh, way back when. <laughs> yeah, that was the point at which my husband said he would never go and see a play with me ever again. <laughs> Let's start with Skyfall then. Gavin, you've, you've brought it up. You go into it. Well, I, I, I think you've already covered the main problem, Kath. I mean, you've got, you've got a Secretary of State chairing a select committee i read it the whole film falls down at that point right it doesn't matter that then people come in and blow the whole thing up and you know you've got the kind of home alone section at the end and you've got yeah, the great yeah. acting of judy Dench none of that matters none of the matters. important <laughs> thing is they had the wrong person chairing the select committee uh that the head of mi6 was at yeah completely agree i mean i, I mean i suppose that's an interesting one actually because it is really about government. It's about a very secret government agency. And I wonder, actually, sometimes with government stuff, that's what people are interested in, because it's about power as well as it's, you know, the process and the, the sort of human political drama. It's also lots of conspiracy theories, whether it's, you know, the Bourne films or James Bond or whatever, about what power that government has. So you tend to see it quite a lot in that. Um, okay, I want to get into a few of our favourites. Gavin, um, I imagine we're going to talk a lot about UK and US and perhaps a bit of Danish political stuff. But what are the programmes or films or whatever that top your list that get stuff right and are good? Well, it's, it's funny. I was going to start with Denmark, actually, um, and Borgen, which I'm currently rewatching. For those of you who've not seen it, it's the story of a moderate uh, party leader. Um, I had one friend who watched uh, Borgen during lockdown. He said all of these references to new centrist parties was incredibly triggering for them. I can't think what they meant. <laughs> um, but it's sort of showing the, the, the rise to power of 
um, a, a politician who you know completely wants to do the right thing. And I remember watching Borgen for the first time while I was working in frontline British politics. And I think what Borgen gets so right, I mean, first of all, it goes up to what James was saying, it's sort of seeing these human beings trying to do the right thing. And it's those sort of small moments of human drama in amongst all of the sort of big sweeping tides of history that makes it really interesting. But they're, they're quite flawed. I mean, they might be trying to do the right thing, but they're having to make compromises. It's actually quite difficult. And you see the toll that it's taking in quite a subtle, mundane way a lot of the time on their personal lives, the sacrifices that they're having to make, just the, the sort of trudge that it can be in government. And I think that contrasts quite nicely with the West Wing. Now, I know it's sacrilegious to criticise the West Wing, so apologies in advance. And of course, it is wonderful, sort of, you know, liberal wish fulfilment, and it's brilliantly written in many respects, and the acting itself. Yeah, 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 we get it, yeah. Yeah. Again, I, I (laughs) I remember watching that for the first time quite late, again, just before I started working on the front line of British politics. And there's a there's a, one, there's, a, there's a sort of moment in the first season of The West Wing where Charlie, who's the um, president's um, sort of aide, just comes up with um, a really good line and it ends up finding its way into the presidential speech. And the speechwriter says to Charlie, you know, that never gets old. And you sort of get the, you can hear the music in the background driving up. Exactly, it feels fantastic. And I remember my first day working in British politics was being locked in a room with my shadow minister and having to write a speech for the next day. So, so far, so very, you know, Charlie, West Wing, everything else. And you've written this, you know, not, not a bad speech. Comes to the next day and our shadow minister gets up to, um, to do the speech and, you know, everybody has an off day from time to time. So they manage to stumble over it a little bit, rush through it a little bit too much. It's not quite the sort of wonderful climax that you're hoping for. And just as I'm sort of adjusting to the fact that this really isn't the West Wing, um, the chief of staff for our politician shows me a tweet, which is somebody saying, oh, I'd heard this politician had just recruited a new um, political advisor. Doesn't look like it based on this speech. <laughs> oh. <laughs> So I, that's a very, very long-winded way, way of saying that I think Borgen gets it right and balances the reality. Right the reality Borgen was right, also like great a great thing. example of us getting insight into the art of compromise in politics. This is kind of par for the course in Denmark, and Borgen offered this amazing insight into what it looks like to try and forge, in that case, centre-left alliances, how you try and build those relationships um, and the kind of right politics with people who have different views to you. So I remember in 2015, it was this great insight into something that the UK just hadn't had to experience for a long time. Yeah, I I wonder if it was also, though, about a female politician at the top Mm, of the game. And also, I mean, certainly for this country, obviously, the before Theresa May, the, the one sort of female politician at the top was a very particular character, um, you know, and so having a different character, shall I say, and go no further, um, was, was you know, quite an interesting exploration. I mean, it's something we, we're talking about a lot at the moment where, uh, you know, there are a lot of men at the top of the current government, certainly, uh, you know, fielding questions at the press conferences or on the airwaves and so forth. There's this whole question about what uh, greater diversity in decision making brings to the quality of decision making and so forth. So I kind of felt it, it started to explore stuff like that. James, I know you wanted to talk about West Wing as well. I mean, yeah, good points, bad points. I could have a bit of a rant about uh, some of the sexism, particularly in the this women 
episode that seems yeah. to sort of rock horror discover that women can speak in entire sentences. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, I, I love the show. It still gives me goosebumps a lot of the episodes and so forth, but um, it has dated a bit, hasn't it? Oh yeah, and look, it has that look to it that makes it feel like it's a 1990s daytime soap and it's it's romanticism verges on the naive in the modern world. And I think you're right, you know, Aaron Sorkin does, uh, with some justification, get criticised a lot for his um, his female roles. They often, even in positions of power like CJ Craig, who we obviously all adore, um, mm-hmm. she often, you know, she gets into a flap quite a lot and she's often seen... Her work life is often seen through the prism of how it's affecting her dating life and her romantic life in a way that none of the male characters ever do. But no, I think you, you know, you're allowed to love things that are problematic, and um, and I, I completely agree with with Gavin. I think it's um, I think at its absolute best, um, it shows how these dramas and films, without being too worthy and earnest about them, I think their their great value is enable to take a system, a, 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 an institution uh, like the West Wing, like American democracy, and use it to stress test its effectiveness, uh, whereby you war game different scenarios in the way that feels safe and entertaining and that you wouldn't want to see in real life. My absolute favourite, it's one of the geekiest episodes actually, but my absolute favourite storyline is at the end of episode four, beginning of episode five, it starts with that soapy element of the president's daughter has been kidnapped, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. But it, it leads to this brilliant, what they managed to construct with, was this wonderful scenario whereby there wasn't currently a vice president and mm. the president had to recuse himself because he didn't think he could effectively run the country while he was stressed about his missing daughter. And what you therefore get to enjoy playing out is some of the um, the absurdities of a system that when you push it to the extreme becomes either either completely tragic or completely farcical. So in the American system, the 25th Amendment, the, that constitutional line goes from president to vice president to speaker. And then you have this glorious moment where they construct that the, the speaker of the House would currently be a Republican, so a different party. And you have a new president in, in the Oval Office who is of a different party, temporarily leading the country, having to work with all the other staff members who obviously are of a different mm. ideological bent. And that's the stuff I love. I really love um, seeing systems at a crossroads where you really, really put pressure on them. So uh, one of the, I mean, you've written a lot about UK politics and obviously, I mean, we could talk about Dominic Cummings if you like, but why not leave it alone? Because we've had a difficult enough year. Um, <laughs> but like, one of the questions we've always posed is, is there space for a UK West Wing? You know, we've had the uh, Yes Minister and the thick of it are the sort of two most famous shows about British politics, but both of which have a very negative view of British state and British politics. Do you think we're just too cynical for something like the West Wing? I think that's the prevailing view, isn't it? I mean, I'll, I'll be really honest. I've pitched, uh, I've pitched uh, Downing Street, the drama, to yeah. um, enough television uh, channels in my time, and they always get like they get quite far down the line. But ultimately, I think broadcasters get nervous. That you're exactly right. What fe- it feels semi ludicrous to us to hero worship our, our politicians and our leaders in that way. And you know, we, we you know we have a, a level of cynicism and scepticism that I think has probably proven quite healthy throughout the years. And we naturally bend towards the satire of the thick of it than the, than the romanticism of, of the West Wing. I would love to think it's possible, uh, but I think the challenge at the moment, and I'm quite glad I never got my 
my Downing Street drama away is is how do you keep up with the scale and the ludicrous mm. nature of events at the moment um, that people just wouldn't if if you put if you put this year on television in a drama ten years ago people wouldn't have believed it. No, I mean that is one of the problems, isn't it? I mean, where is the room for political satire given you know the events of the last few years? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Although it's amazing yeah. sometimes how close like satire and real life um, can become. I, mean, I know it's old now, but the thick of it essentially predicted the big society with third sex of pathfinders but like, it's amazing yeah. how <laughs> they are <laughs> yeah and i don't know if anyone's ever seen the rise and rise of michael rimmer it's a political satire from i think the late 70s of peter oh, cook no. in the in the title role and again it, it's it's remarkable in how it sort of looks at the sort of poll focus group driven um, amorality of, of a particular view of politics. Um, so do watch that if, if you haven't already. Yeah, and I mean, uh, you know, yes, Minister, I always feel a bit torn on because on the one hand, you know, it is, um, it, it's extremely sort of cutting and incisive in its sort of portrayal of both the civil servants and the politicians. And my former PhD supervisor, Peter Hennessy, was involved in some of the writing of it. So I have reason to sort of say why it's good. But on the other hand, it's it's kind of, you know, at one point, I think I banned using Yes Minister in any of our blogs or attempted to. I have no power um, because it's become so much of a cliche that somebody is Sir Humphrey, um, you know, in, in civil service. And that's not at all the kind of civil servants that I encounter. I mean, some of the constructions, the contrivances that they come up with, um, you know, do sort of satirize and, and um puncture a bit of the reality but the the characterization of the people and the loss of sort of the the public service spirit that actually dominates a lot of governments kind of undermines it a little bit so I feel a bit torn about it. Alice I want to move us on a little bit I think you want to talk about the important relationship between governments and the airline industry. <laughs> so I have a question for you Air Force One that's a plane right? No! <laughs> This is, I, I do know this. I'm just trolling you. Yeah, it's not. It's weird that you know that, Kath. It's not something that I ever mentioned. Um, so yeah, um, this is this is the very niche hill on which I will die. And here's a fun fact for all of you: uh, on January the 20th, when uh, Vice President, sorry, President-elect Biden is inaugurated, you know, you might hear sort of journalists saying that former President Trump is flying off into the sunset on Air Force One. He is not. Uh, Air Force One is not a specific plane. It's not the big blue and white plane that you usually see that says United States of America on the side of it. Air Force One is a call sign for any plane carrying the current president of the United States. And did you know that before you watched the Harrison Ford movie? Or is your entire um, interest in in American politics based on watching this when you were younger? Um, A large part, yes. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Okay, but honestly, what is it about the show? I mean, and one thing we should say, I'm shocked that you haven't seen Die Hard if you love Air Force One, but um, okay, we'll we'll have to try and change that this Christmas. Yeah, It's a Christmas film, of course, famously. Exactly, yeah, so I can do that over Christmas. So Air Force One, what I love about Air Force One and what it does quite well is, um, so the plot, for those of you who haven't seen it, President James Marshall, a.k.a. President Harrison Ford, is on Air Force One, on the way back from delivering this big foreign policy speech in Moscow. And he kind of goes off the rails in this speech and he sets out this brand new kind of doctrine for foreign policy. And you kind of think this is going to be a really interesting film about the kind of nuanced and difficult 
um, way that America had to try and formulate foreign policy in the kind of post-Cold War era. Um, it then sort of loses focus a little bit from government issues. <laughs> and instead, it, it kind of ends up being more about um, zip wires, parachutes, a mid-air refueling sequence. Um, there is an excellent discussion of the 25th Amendment that James mentioned earlier. There's a, a great discussion with that featuring Vice President Glenn Close, uh, which highly recommend. It's one of the best descriptions of it you will see. Um, but yeah, it, it kind of loses focus, I think, from some of those government issues. And I think the other problem I, I have with it is that it very much presents a president who is quite hands-on, uh, doesn't really delegate a lot of things in the film. And I think it really... Pro- including rescuing Including himself. rescuing himself. Uh, at one point, he has to rewire the whole plane. You know, and I, I just worry that that really sets quite unrealistic expectations about the kinds of skill set that we think the yeah. president should have. I think that's true. And also, I mean, you know, you could say it's very Trumpian, the declaration, get off my plane, as if it is not the plane belonging to the American people and him representing them as the, the president. So well, but I guess that, that would huge, be a bit... There is that um, huge irony there as well. That didn't, didn't Trump on his campaign trail and ever since use the Air Force One theme music, I think, whenever he walked on I think he did, yeah. I think there was a controversy yeah. about that. You're right. Yeah. Oh, to be honest, my, my main disappointment was that they never did the sequel because you could, of course, have done Marine One, which I think, Alice, that's the presidential <laughs> helicopter, isn't that Marine One? <laughs> but not a specific helicopter, just one that any president is in, right? Uh, we're all going to get that right from now on. <laughs> Let's move on from fictional worlds or adaptations of our world that are specifically about government to take a look at some films and shows where the underlying problems of government and governance are really to blame for, well, uh, pretty much anything. All across many galaxies, both a long time ago and far, far away. You can see where we're going here. Uh, You can find examples of disastrous outsourcing, chaotic decision-making, and a general failure to read the many IFG lessons on what makes for effective governments. So where some people might obsess about how a mobile phone would have fixed all of the plot in a movie, we obsess about how better governments could have turned a story on its head. Gavin, you're going to kick us off. If the IFG existed in any fictional universe, which do you choose and what would be our first report about? Well, I think it would be a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, wouldn't it? I think it would have to be the Death Star in Star Wars. That's no moon. That's a failed government mega project. I think think, the Death Star and the the continued failure of Death Stars, plural, raises a lot of questions. I think actually one of them is should in No, the second one's not a Death Star. It's a planet, right? It's Star Killer. There's the Yavin Death Star. There are a couple in the original trilogy. But we do get to the planet as well, which I think is a spectacular failure. So I think the first question is, would this actually have been quite a good occasion for them to have outsourced the construction of the Death Star? Now, there are good security reasons for not doing so. You do need to think about whether you want private infrastructure holding um, sort of galactic security secrets. Um, but it looks like they've tried to take on too much by trying to build it in-house. Mm. Um, and, you know, they, they perhaps should have considered outsourcing it to some specialists who knew what they were doing when it came to building planet-destroying weapons. Now, of course, that raises its own questions. The Sith may be strong in the ways of the dark side of the force, but are they strong in the right commercial skills to successfully <laughs> procure 
on that scale. So I think you know I, I think you know the, the empire definitely needs to look at its capability for um, sort of commercial contracts. The fact that they keep repeating these mistakes, as you said, Kath, you know they go from building the Death Stars, then trying to turn a planet into the Death Star, mm. rather than trying to go bigger. The lessons they should have taken from the earlier failures were well, actually, can we break this mega project down into smaller parts? Can we bring in smaller, medium-sized enterprises to build different parts of the system? Can we build this in an agile and iterative way rather than trying to go for a big waterfall project where you're trying to plan everything um, mm. for, for, from up front? But I think what I think you know, we, we might think that these are mega project failures, these are procurement failures. Actually, I think it speaks that the, the failure to learn lessons, I think, speaks to what is really the problem in the Star Wars universe. This, not just with the empire, but also with the rebellion and the resistance. And that is a catastrophic failure of knowledge and information management. Now, when we think about that, we think about institutional memory, how data and information is used and how it flows. And, you know, you need to look at two aspects of that system. First of all, people, and second, the processes and the data itself. If we start with the people, high turnover is clearly a problem in the empire. You know, everybody who saw the failures of the first Death Star up close would Mm -hmm. killed when when the Death Star was destroyed. So you're losing an awful lot of knowledge um, about what went wrong when that happens. And of course, if we look at how the empire... I mean, they did have a film that they could have watched back, but uh, maybe they didn't know that. There there is that. Um, And (laughs) even beyond that, there is a problem that, you know, should you displease Darth Vader, you literally get it in the neck. Now, That's an accountability issue, right? That is an accountability issue. And it's not quite a problem in the same way in the UK government, unless you're in the Home Office, maybe. Um, But we do see a lot of turnover as people are incentivised to move around a lot. And, you know, you're not able to contact the person who's in the job before you. And I think we really see that play out with Death Star. But I think the second problem is how you store the data and the processes you have for doing it. Now, again, there are good cybersecurity reasons for hiding Death Star plans in obscure data centres behind, you know, shields and things on obscure planets. But it does mean it's much more difficult to learn from that information, to share that information. You're trying to keep that information too secret, almost. Again, we saw that with Brexit, where, you know, cabinet office and DEXU, I think, were keeping some of that information far too close. And it meant the rest of government didn't know what was really going on. So there are real problems from not being open and transparent with the data, it not being able to flow within um, the empire. Um, and yeah. I think I think we see that, you know, in a galaxy lacking common languages and interoperable standards, perhaps the Ewoks are right to consider the protocol droid god. Okay, fair enough. I mean, uh, I, I think we've discussed this before, but as you know, my one of my big, big bugbears is the Rebel Alliance failing to make any post-war plans uh, for how to sort of bring the, the galaxies together, uh, you know, with inter-galaxy governmental um, rules-based system, all of that kind of stuff. Um, I've also got uh, something thrown in here from Sam McCrory. Oh, actually, what is a protocol droid, first of all? Um, C-3PO. This is is why he is so important to the films, because everybody's data management is terrible. And because we have all these different standards and standards and languages and things, only somebody like C-3PO is able to translate between them. Yeah. Um, So a quick question from Sam McCrory, our director of comms, who behind the scenes helped me prepare for all of this. He says, do you not feel any sympathy for Darth Vader? He's got a confusing personal life. His son won't speak to him and he doesn't even know he has a daughter. His health, check out the breathing, isn't great. But also he spent the best part of half a decade campaigning for the dark side, but it's clearly some regrets about taking that position. (laughs) Building a Death Star on top of that is a tough ask. I'm just going to leave that question posing. And James, I want to come to you because I know you also want to talk about Star Wars. 
I do. Well, I think everything that Gavin said is completely, um, completely valid. Um, I just think it's actually a, an incredible series of political parables and lessons that will never, never get old. I mean, growing up as a kid, obviously I enjoyed, you know, the lightsaber battles and the epic fight between good and evil. But the joy of the much maligned prequels to me is the discovery, in fact, that, of course, the reason for this epic operatic fight between light and darkness across the galaxy, it turns out it actually came from the inability of a, of a nation that was separating from a single block to get a satisfactory trade deal. And you think, well, that's just, you know, mm-hmm. that's really, really exciting. Also, fundamentally, I think it's a celebration of everything that your institution stands for. You know, basically the Jedi Council, I think we've mentioned them before with regards to Yes Minister, but they're basically, um, they're basically the civil British civil service, aren't they? They stand mm-hmm. for... Um, well, I think the force, in my mind, is essentially can be summed up by the uh, seven principles of public life, the Nolan principles. I think that, to me, are the ways of the force. The Jedi Council represent um, integrity, objectivity, accountability, openness, honesty. Um, and I think, it's a, I think it's a love letter, essentially, to basic um, civil service decency and consistency in, in public life. I also think that um, Obi-Wan Kenobi is basically a Lib Dem because he's, I think, you know, George Lucas is essentially the absolute ultimate centrist dad. And I think Star Wars is a love letter to basic social democracy. I mean, it's a a warning. We mentioned Darth Vader. It's a basic warning of uh, falling into the extremes. We all remember Obi-Wan Kenobi on the planet of Mustafar shouting at Anakin Skywalker uh, oh God, what's the phrase he says? Oh, absolutes. It's a, it's a warning against absolutes. Only the Sith deal in absolutes. You know, as we saw when Anakin moved to the political extremes, he lost all perspective. He started believing the conspiracy theories that he was reading and hearing from from the Emperor. Um, so yes, I think it's an absolute testimony to the to the centre ground and to moderation in all forms. So on the light side, is there really equality of opportunity? Or are they missing out on some of the brightest and the best by keeping it all within one big family? And do they need to explore levelling up in the Star Wars universe? I think it's a ter- it's a terrific argument for, for greater uh, diversity in decision making, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm going to come to you now. We're going to move from one fantasy world to another. And Harry Potter, we were talking about this the other day. I mean, very strange to have such a large um, magical world that is governed by a single ministry, although um, I think it's got several departments underneath (laughs) the ministry, which is very confusing nomenclature um, in terms of ministries and departments in UK government. But what do you think it tells us about? Okay, well, look, everyone watches Harry Potter at Christmas, but I think we all need to face it. Harry Potter essentially lives in a world that is sorely in need of a programme of institutional and economic reform. It's basically yeah. a lesson in how not to is a state. It's got an unreformed economy, centralised state power, no independent judiciary, and a school system that literally consists of one school. Not to yeah. mention massive problems with equality. I mean, house elves are enslaved for generations. I'm going to give a few examples here. So the state is both the executive, the legislature, and the judiciary all in one, clearly violating the hallowed principle of separation of powers. Proceedings are overseen by the Minister of Magic. Um, People are arbitrarily sentenced to death. Where's the appeals process? There's no free press. The Daily Prophet is essentially state media. It cannot hold the Ministry of Magic to account, and it's often suppressed. The only other paper, the Quibbler, is swiftly banned when it reports the truth. Where's the protection of free speech? There are also big economic questions on, like, for instance, banking reform. Gringotts Bank is essentially a single centralised bank 
that clearly violates important financial principles. It holds big sums in its vaults. It doesn't lend out. And you can see those problems reflected in the economy. There's no innovation. Most businesses have been there for thousands of years. Twins are only able to open up a shop by relying on private wealth. And yeah, on education reform, I mean, where do we start? There's no competition. There's no good standards of regulation. Professor Snape is a former member of the Death Eaters. Where is the equivalent of CRB checks? Yeah, no, definitely. Do you, do you think academising Hogwarts would, would help? I mean, make it a free school. Exactly. I mean, isn't effectively already partly run by the parents because don't they all turn up on mass and arrest the um, headmistress at one point when it's McGonagall or something uh, they're all death eaters but you know arbitrary power in the school banning Harry and the other students from being taught how to combat the dark arts so in some ways you know the ministry's got too tight a grip on there uh, on Hogwarts okay let's move away from fantasy and into rural England Alice what have you got for us so I'm very concerned about government failure in the county of Midsummer. Um, mm. For those of you who don't know, county of Midsummer, uh, English kind of countryside, lots and lots of villages, and it has frankly been suffering from a murder epidemic for a really long time. Uh, I think at the last count there have been over 200 murders. And it just seems to me to be a complete failure of government. You would have thought there'd be a massive public inquiry at this stage, You would right? think, but you never yeah. hear questions in and the where's Commons. where's the select committees? Yeah. Where's the select yeah. committees? Where are the MPs? Where's the police and crime commissioner in all of this? Yeah. And I think what, what gets me is that, you know, you have what seems to be a very under-resourced police force, which is frankly, you know, it's a detective, his sidekick and a pathologist, who do an incredible job of solving all of these murders. But at no point do you actually try and see any attempt to be proactive rather mm. than reactive. And you would think that having had these kind of 200 murders, some of which are, I think it's fair to say, very unusual. You know, the person who was mm. pinned down to a lawn with croquet pins and killed by having um, vintage bottles of claret fired at them from a trebuchet. It's its not usual. Mm. Um but at no point has there been, you know, a task force established or anything like that. And I think what you really need in Midsummer is a sort of place-based approach to crime prevention. And it's just mm. sorely lacking. Mm. That is a very good point. And also, I mean, I wonder if it's also a call out for data in terms of looking at the types of characteristics of the suspects involved, the weapons that they use, the sort of circumstances. A lot of these seem to occur, um, you know, in and around a very small area. There must be some data work that should somebody somewhere should be doing, Gavin. Absolutely. And I I think it shows that, you know, we we see that the Americans are further ahead of us in this respect. Um, You know, if you look at the Baltimore of the Wire, for instance, Mm-hmm. or the New York of Brooklyn Nine-Nine, mm. where CompStat, that ability to put cops on dots based on the data that's coming in. You know, as, as the, the, the great um, Commander Holt tells us in, in Brooklyn Nine-Nine, the statistical analysis, it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. You know, I, I, think it's, I think it's really important that, you know, rural midsummer learns from that. I think it, it's interesting to hear Alice talk. I think the same is also true of Urban Wigan, where you see one man and his dog, and that is Wallace and Gromit, having to take responsibility for fighting crime. And again, when where are the police in all of this? Yeah, that is very, very true. concerning. Mm. 
I want to move on. I, I feel even though I'm hosting, I want to do one of my favourites. I want to talk a little bit about Lord of the Rings and my thesis that although many of you think that this is about elves and magic and, you know, hobbits and rings and the Dark Lord and all of that kind of stuff, actually um, it's a huge amount about governments and uh, the total failure of developing a rules-based international Middle Earth system. Uh, I also feel like there's a lot of Brexit in there, even though it came well before uh, anyone had even conceived of the European Union, let alone leaving it. But it's also about how to come out of the age of elves, uh, sort of, you know, with a strong trading economy with your neighbours and security. And it's about cross-border extradition treaties and the rise and fall of great powers. But my central thesis is that um, actually the entire thing is driven by this because um, if you remember, you know, the, the reason why Frodo manages to get the ring to Mount Doom to destroy it is because Sam carries him that final bit. You know, I can't carry it, but I can carry you. And as I'm sure you're all very well aware, the entire motivating force throughout for Sam, I mean, yes, there's a bit of Frodo, but most of it is getting back to Rosie Cotton. Um, Rosie is this uh, um, other hobbit who worked at an inn. So Sam is driven by his desire to get back to Rosie Cotton. And, when, and we know from the books that when Sam does get back, actually the Shire economically is all falling apart because in the meantime, Saruman has come back over and has started putting up some very nasty, heavy industry so Sam then becomes mayor and has to sort of rebuild the economy with the help of Rosie Cotton, although, um, you know, in the great tradition of uh, films in which female characters be- don't even speak, let alone uh, talk to another female about something that isn't men. Uh, she doesn't get much of a show, but I like to think that off screen, she's actually the driving force behind this sort of new economic order. <laughs> um, <laughs> I just left your speechless. That's brilliant. There could be some wonderful spin-offs from from that. I mean, the kind of you know the economic power behind the throne miniseries. Yeah. I think you know Gollum, in a sense, would make a great character in a political drama because you kind of see the internal monologue <laughs> all the way through of having to weigh up competing interests and, and different perspectives. Yeah, and I mean, you could say that it's a very negative view of uh, civil servants because the two that we get closest to are Grimer Wormtongue, who obviously very bad character, um, naughty boy, shouldn't have done all of that, um, and then also uh, the steward of Gondor. I don't know whether you'd see him as a sort of mayor type role or whatever. Again, it's a or a police um, and crime commissioner. Police, police and crime commissioner, possibly. Yeah, I mean, again, it's one based on a sort of hereditary position. Um, but even so, it's he's, you know he's not the king himself and so forth. So they get kind of a negative showing. I mean, unless you include you know civil servants of the sort of other warriors leading some of the armies and so forth, in which case, great. But um, uh, they don't really seem to sort of come across with all of that. And also, again, total lack of post-war planning for how they're going to feed everyone in the aftermath of uh, this great battle of our age and all of that. Okay, I've got another question from the audience. And by audience, again, I mean Sam McCrory, our director of comms. Uh, He wants kids TV examined. So there was a Twitter exchange between a couple of senior BBC politics producers when one asked, please can Politics Live commission a piece on who funds the Paw Patrol? Um, this is this is a big unanswered aspect of many shows uh, in children's TV that seem to deal with arms length bodies and public services. Um, how does the fat controller wield such unchallenged?
unchecked power and administer terrible punishments in Thomas the Tank Engine. I also think there's some big regulatory gaps over in the night garden. So this may seem to be a whole separate podcast, but I mean, we all watched, you know, kids TV when we're young. Some of us still watch quite a bit of it today. Um, Emma, what do you think? Is there um, a whole sort of stream that we need to think about, about whether we are teaching our children the best aspects of government through these programmes? I think that's exactly right. I mean, you know, Thomas the Tank Engine like, is a universe with a fat controller who seems to wield arbitrary power um, over the transport system. No, um, no knowledge of how he got to that position. Nothing it, at all. Exactly. And where are the elections? Why is it always the same person? You know, how long is his term in office? I mean, it, it does raise questions about where the where the authority comes from for Thunderbirds and yeah. for yeah. Spectrum and Captain Scarlet and also Stingray, you know, people who are ostensibly doing good and protecting the world against um, evil and you know, real threats. Um, but where, where, where does that authority come from? From, from where is it vested? I think you know, these, these are very important questions. And it seems very Sorry. unilateral as well. You know, there's mm. what, I mean... As you say, Gavin, there's there's no sense of where kind of Thunderbird's authority comes from, but it's very much something that yeah. transcends national boundaries. And is there any kind of international real agreement about that yeah. international accountability? It's not clear. And as yeah. we were discussing earlier with Star Wars, you know, the fact that all of this power is vested in one single family, I think that's quite concerning too. <laughs> I think I think um, Fraggle Rock seems to work as a as a societal system. Oh, that is a good call. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, they're, they're, there's lots of different um, species, different people living together. They have an incredible work ethic. I know they I know they um, rely a lot on the doozers to be building um, to be building the infrastructure inside. And I suppose actually, the, there is a constant fear of the outsider and the threat from the outside, and that that does mobilize. That does I think probably means certain civil liberties get. Um, broken down from the fear of the other, from the fear of the, the outside. But, um, but apart from that, I think um, it feels like a, quite a nice, warm place to live. Like all the best shows, we're going to have to uh, come to the end of it while we are ahead. One final question to you all. I want to know what TV show or movie about government is crying out to be made. I'm going to kick us off and say that there was a great film uh, in the 1990s called Clark's, which is about convenience store staff, uh, day in the life of them, where they sit around, philosophize, talk rubbish, uh, and generally annoy um, all of the customers. So I want to make a new version of this, which is set in the parliamentary table office. So it also could be called Clark's. It uh, basically would be two of them discussing uh, who knows what, rather sort of mundane and slow and so forth. Meanwhile, lots of people come in. The table office is where you come in to sort of put down motions or amendments or whatever or ask thorny procedural questions. So I kind of think of it as like almost like, you know, noises off, stuff happening off uh, screen that, you know, can't be seen. There's some kind of big political drama. And meanwhile, it's all centred around these two clerks sitting in the table office uh, trying to get on with their work, but having to deal with all of these things. I also wondered, I mean, given the drama of recent years, you could almost have a waiting for Godot style approach to it and call it waiting for Brexit. But um, that's my attempt at something or other that could be made. Um, Who wants to go next? I mean, I would love to watch something about the final days of an ALB, um, obviously, oh. <laughs> uh, that's been abolished by government in the middle of a, a major public health crisis. 
I, uh, I mean, I feel I, like that's I, I, a bit I, sort of true to life kind of thing. Is that <laughs> is that really fictional? Uh, <laughs> yeah. And of yeah. course, one of our one of our um, one of our colleagues, Jill Rutter, did describe Spectre, the most recent um, released Bond film, as basically a film about failed arms length body reform yeah. as they tried to merge the intelligence agency. So it feels like a, a rich scene there. Yeah. Gavin, go on then. What's yours? What th- What do you think? So I, I, I've got two. Um, one, with all of these announcements of Star Wars spin-offs, I would quite like to see a political drama somewhere in there. I mean, for all the reasons that James was, was, was talking about earlier, you know, all of politics is there, good versus evil, you know, the sort of spiritual and secular power, empires falling, empires rising, questions about whether the good life consists of being active in politics or sitting around philosophizing with space puffins. You know, I think all of that is, is kind of there, and it'd be great to see something um, on that. The second thing I would really like to see is actually, again, something that James was talking about earlier. I would like to see a British attempt at a sort of serious, non, not, not entirely critical drama about how politics works. You know, maybe following one piece of legislation, say, through the House, and you're seeing it from the different perspectives of the government, of the opposition, of, um, you know, of interest groups and things like that. Because I think one political drama we haven't mentioned, which is the best of the lot, which is Baron Noir, um, mm. it's all about French politics, that's able, because of the French political system, to give you the whole sweep from street fighting to statesmanship. And I think you know, something that did that for British politics, I think, would be really interesting. That's very interesting. Alice, you go next. So I've got two. The first one is I would like to see some kind of dramatisation of the events leading up to Four Seasons Total Landscaping. Oh, yeah, definitely. (laughs) There's just so much to unpack in that. Uh, But the other one, a bit closer to home, I'm going to cheat slightly and go slightly outside of government and pick up on assorted pub conversations that we've had over the years which is we have started thinking about what some kind of sitcom set in a UK think tank might look like. Mm. So in Mm. particular, we were thinking about, you know, the team who was behind uh, 2012. You know, Hugh Bonneville's character obviously then moves to be uh, head of values at the BBC. What -hmm. would happen if he was to try and take over uh, a think tank? What would what would that look like? And I think there's there's a lot that could be done there. Mm-hmm. We, it, it's worth saying we have got as far as coming up with some of the character ideas for this um, as well. So you'd need we to a, be a huge data nerd. Um, well, obviously, they'd be the hero of the whole thing. But you know, you'd have a head of thoughts, a director yeah. of thoughts, and then a vice president of ideas. Because you know, why not? Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Um, okay, James, I'm not going to ask you which of ours is the best and which you want to steal. Um, feel free to nick any of them. What's crying out to be made? What are you thinking about? Uh, you know, where can we go, especially after a year like this? Uh, I'm just writing all those down. Sorry, they do something okay. like this. I will um, give you all credit and 5% royalty. Uh, I think much. what will I, I I always think, I always try and find really surprising and on paper, uh, really boring environments to place um, the next ideological battle in. Um, and I think, I don't know, I, I'm quite tempted in a parks and recreation way, way which I can't oh, remember. Oh, we haven't talked about that. What's going yeah. on? Yeah. Uh, I think, what is the British equivalent of that? So, I don't know, maybe the planning office of a local home county's mm. um, council. I think that's probably the, the battleground in which we'll all be meeting uh, in the next yeah. decade. 
Um, yeah, no, big shout out to Parks and Recreation. I think that is my favourite show of all time, let alone um, just of, of government, just because it does actually show the positives of it for all the sort of farcical scenes and so forth. There is a sort of love of public service at the heart of Leslie Nope. And yeah, just the sheer sort of mundanity of it, yet yeah, can be hugely sort of dramatic. Uh, so it's a fascinating one. Thank you for reminding me about that. Okay, that's it from us. Um, as ever, plenty of non-fiction podcasts on government in our back catalogue. So if you want to duck out of the world of fiction and fantasy and head back to 2020, as unbelievable as it has been at times, uh, it is all there for you. Lots of podcasts, lots of events, lots of papers and publications, all at our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk. And we're all on Twitter, so do get in touch and tell us which shows we've missed or where we've got it wrong. We will choose to ignore you if we disagree. Until then, though, a huge thanks to everyone for joining in today, Emma, Alice, Gavin, and particularly James. And thank you all for listening at home. Hoping you all have the best Christmas that you can. 